Let's get our Bibles and open to Colossians chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 8 through 15 for us. As always, we're going to stand for the reading of God's Word, so I'm going to invite you to do that now and give your full attention to this portion that I'm about to read again, Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Please have a seat. I invite you to pray with me. God, you just told us in this passage that in Christ, the whole fullness, we wonder about who is this God that made us? Who's in charge of everything? And you've very clearly and definitively and tangibly answered the question. You point us to Jesus and you say, if you want to know who I am, if you want to know what I'm like, the whole fullness of my deity dwells in Jesus. And so we ask very simply that you would cause us to be obsessed with Jesus this morning. Help us to, to fixate on him. And we pray that as a, as a result, many, many things in life would become clear for us because of how you have manifested who you are in the person and work of Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Okay, so let's all just admit it. We, every single one of us, uh, we are ashamed of how much we are on our phones. We, we all spend way too much time on our phones. We, we drive around, we know it's illegal to look at our phones while we drive. Even our phones shame us. Uh, our phones offer us these unsolicited screen time reports just, just to kind of, hey, you know, our phones are saying, hey, listen, it's, it's getting a little ridiculous how, how much you're looking at me. Um, our children, if you're parents, your children shame you. You know, they, they have those pesky questions about life and can you help me with my homework and they just want our attention and you know we're trying to be on our phones we're trying to watch youtube or instagram and, and these pesky kids they want our attention so we feel ashamed um or you know maybe it's just being with another relative like like a sibling or a parent or your spouse and uh, you're trying to be alone in the living room on your phone and then they'll come in and shame you by by reading a book instead of you know being on their phone as well. It's, it's fine if we're all together on our phones because then it's, you know, we're all doing the shameful thing. But if somebody has the audacity to like read a book, 
then you just feel like, oh, come on. Don't be so self-righteous. Let's just all be on our phones. <laughs> now, I, I genuinely want to try to deliver you from at least a smidgen of that shame this morning. Um, and I want to do that by offering you one opportunity that you can feel good about uh, to be on your phone. Okay, so later today, uh, this, this, this will only last about a minute and 38 seconds. That's as long as this clip is. But I want you to, to go on your phone later today or on your laptop and go to YouTube and search Amazing Grace, the Madagascar. Okay, that's what you're going to search. YouTube, Amazing Grace, which is a movie about William Wilberforce. And you're going you're gonna to type the Madagascar. And uh, in this scene, just, just over a minute and a half, um, what you'll see is these members of parliament are out on a pleasure cruise with, with a, a politician that they support and endorse. And uh, these wealthy uh, trendsetters, you know, influencers, the nobility of, of the, the land of England at that time, they're out on this pleasure cruise. And this politician, unbeknownst to them, has been working with William Wilberforce to have their, their yacht sail by a, a slave ship that's recently returned from the, from the Indies. And so in this scene, William Wilberforce will, will come out onto the deck of this Madagascar slave ship, and he'll speak to the, the nobility, to the, to the wealthy members of parliament, and he'll say this, ladies and gentlemen, this, and he points to the, the ship he's standing on, he says, this is a slave ship. It's called the Madagascar. And it has just returned from the Indies, where it delivered 200 men, women, and children to Jamaica. And when it left Africa, there were 600 people on board. So 400 people died on this voyage from the Indies to Jamaica. And, and right around this time, it'll show you the, the wealthy people taking out their handkerchiefs and covering their faces, covering their noses, because the stench of death is starting to register in their nostrils, and they're, they're overwhelmed by this. And Wilberforce, uh, Wilberforce says, that smell that is overwhelming you, that is the smell of death. Slow, painful death. Breathe it in. Breathe it deep. All your cherished traditions, your economy, your luxuries, your comforts, it's all predicated on this, this stench of death. Breathe it in. In fact, he demands that they take the handkerchiefs away from their faces. He says, no, no, no. Don't put your handkerchiefs over your noses. Breathe it in. Remember that smell. Breathe it in deep. Remember the Madagascar. And remember that these people that we are enslaving, they are image bearers of God. They, they are equal to us in the sight of God. All men are equal. Now, now that's bold. That's a, that's a bold way to, to confront a big problem. And, you know, the, the economy of the nation is, is riding on this oppressive, stifling system called slavery. So it's a big deal to confront this problem in such a bold way. Uh, these people, these members of parliament, I mean, they, they have built their lives around this tradition of slavery. I mean, it's how they, they finance their fancy vacations. It's how they pay their mortgages. It's, it's how they continue to live a life of status is, is because of this enslavery, this enslavement, this, this tradition, this man-made uh, policy 
that, that keeps our lives running on the tracks that we run them on. So William Wilberforce in that scene is boldly confronting oppressive man-made customs, and he's clarifying what God emphasizes, what God says is most emphatically true. And that's what Paul is doing here. That's what Paul is doing in most all of his letters. And, and that is very much what he's doing here in this passage that we're looking at this morning. Uh, Paul is, is a guy who's not shy about offering bold confrontation. And you see that in verse 8. Verse 8 is a warning. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. These human traditions that, that follow elemental spirits of the world that are not of the Holy Spirit, that are not of Christ. Now, perhaps you read verse 8 and you think, well, that doesn't really register with me as, as, a, as a major warning or, or a particularly bold convert confrontation. But it really, really was. You have to grasp this. Paul was literally putting his life on the line every time he said something like this. It's kind of like in 1947 when this guy Jackie Robinson started playing in the major league of baseball. You know, you look at that from, from a distance, from where we sit now, and you think, well, that's not a big deal. I mean, here a, a black guy is playing baseball. What's the big deal? But he was putting his life on the line to do that. He was, he, was th he was putting his life in danger, his wife's life in danger, his children's lives in danger, his fellow teammates' lives in danger by simply going out on that field every day and playing that game. And that's, that's what it's like for Paul. Every time Paul issues a warning like this, uh, the nobility of his culture, right? The, the wealthy, aristocratic people, the, the religious leaders of his day, they would become extremely angry with Paul for saying stuff like this. If you read through the New Testament, if you read through the book of Acts and Paul's letters, you, you, you see pretty consistently that Paul is being hunted and, and pretty constantly harassed by people who are committed to killing him for saying stuff like this. In, in one scene in the book of Acts, there's this uh, story where over 40 men take a vow to not eat or drink anything until they've killed Paul because he's, he's upsetting their traditions. He's saying things that they, that they would, would say it's, it's irreverent. It's, it's, it's pr uh, promoting unholiness and irreverence. And it's destabilizing all of the precious traditions and customs that we have worked so hard to establish. And it should be pointed out that Paul doesn't just sort of poke the bear, you could say. Um, he, he's really hitting the bear in the jaw with a two-by-four, right? right? Like in the movie Tommy Boy, when David Spade hits Chris Farley across the face with the two-by-four. I went back and rewatched that scene this past week. The two-by-four comes out of nowhere. He's just punching him, and then in the next moment, he's just, somehow he's got this long two-by-four. <laughs> he breaks it over Chris's face. That's what Paul's doing. So, so when you read some of Paul's others, other letters, uh, he, he's really not pulling punches. He's not, he's not gentle about this. He's very bold. So, for example, in his letter to Timothy, he, he warns the church in Ephesus about the doctrine of demons. That sounds pretty pretty heavy duty. That sounds serious. He says, there are people who are teaching demonic doctrines, the teachings of demons. 
And you wonder, like, what, what is he talking about? Is he talking about, like, like uh, sexual sensuality and, and uh, in, indulgence, you know, self-indulgent lifestyles? Well, certainly that's perhaps part of it. But, but his specific citation of demonic doctrine is people who promote really strict rule following. People who, who have, for example, really stifling strict rules about what you can eat, what you can drink. They want to regulate and control all of these, these tedious details of your life. And they want to forbid you from partaking of God's good gifts. Like, like he says, they forbid marriage. This is a wonderful, good gift. And these uptight legalists will forbid you from living a life of freedom and joy in Christ. And they will forbid you from experiencing God's good gifts. And they will tell you that if you abstain from all these things and hold to their regulations, you are pleasing God. And that is not true. That's a lie. That is deceitful. That is why it is demonic. In his letter to the church in Galatia, Paul says there are false teachers. And then he goes on to explain these are traditionalists and, and legalists. They, they hold to human traditions, not the emphatic truths of God. And, and Paul says, you need, to, you need to heed my warning and understand that these malicious teachers, they are slipping in to spy out our freedom. Because God wants you to have freedom, he says. God wants you to have joy. And these malicious teachers, they don't have any joy. They don't have any freedom. And they want to enslave you to their traditions. And their flimsy, worthless, elementary principles. That's what he says in his letter to the church to, in Galatia. And, and Paul, you have to bear this in mind, he, he understands the, the details of uh, how, how, how bad it can be because he used to be one of those guys. Paul, Paul is very intimately acquainted with the details of how bad these, these stifling, enslaving uh, policies and regulations can be because Paul used to be a legalist. But then something changed. Something really dramatic happened in Paul's life. He met Jesus of Nazareth. He met Jesus. And he, he came to the realization that Jesus was a very bold confronter of, of these same things that we see Paul confronting. So, for example, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is being antagonized by the teacher. And they notice that Jesus' disciples don't hold to their traditions. You know, their disciples aren't following that protocol. And so they, they confront Jesus. They say, why don't your disciples live according to our cherished traditions? And listen to this. This is how Jesus responds. He says, you guys are hypocrites. He's not very gentle. He's not very delicate or nuanced in his response. He says, here's, here's the bottom line. Here's what I'm going to say in response to your question. You're hypocrites. You honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from God. You worship God in vain. You have the world fooled. Everybody thinks you're these holy, pious, sanctified people, but you worship God in vain because you teach your precious, your precious traditions and doctrines, which are merely human rules, as if they were the rules of God. You reject God's commands, actually. You are the lawless ones because you reject the, the core, most emphatic truths of God, which is to love God and enjoy God and love others. And, and you reject God's emphasis in, in favor of following your own precious traditions. 
And Paul, he's picked up on some of that. Paul, Paul has learned how to be bold like this in his letters because he knows Jesus, because he's united to Jesus. And so it begs the question, how are we being enticed into in, in some version of enslavement? I, I mean, what empty, deceitful philosophies, human traditions hold us captive? What sort of worthless elementary principles are, are suffocating us? Because we invite them into our lives and, and they rob us of joy and freedom. We actually kicked this question around at our life group last Sunday um, and we gave a, a number of answers, but some that jumped out to me. One was um, materialism or, or consumerism. Like, you know, you have to have certain products like you're, you're a slave to whatever products are being promoted. And, and it's like, well, I have to have a Stanley Cup or I have to have a Patagonia vest or I have to have a North Face hoodie or I have to have some material item because like my identity is all bound up in having it or not having it. My status is on the line and I have to have this item. When I was growing up, it was stonewash jeans. Y'all remember stonewashed jeans? No joke, I saw someone last week wearing what I believe to be were stonewashed jeans. So these are not, they're not a beautiful pair of pants. I don't know why they were so trendy, but I remember having a very vivid dream in middle school that I owned a pair of stonewashed jeans. And I kid you not, this dream was so, so potent that I woke up the next morning and I went to my dresser drawer where I kept my jeans and I opened it fully expecting that I had them. Like I had convinced myself that I had finally obtained and possessed a pair of these cherished stonewashed jeans. And I, I didn't. I didn't have them. It was a very disappointing morning. Another one uh, that we talked about at Life Group last week, another way we, we are enslaved to some like human customer tradition is uh, this, this whole idea of like a self-determined de- self identity or a self-manufactured sense of worth. And, and we started talking about the movie Chariots of Fire, you know, the story of Eric Little. And uh, in that story, right, you have one guy, but these two Olympic runners, these, these athletes, and one guy, he runs, even in these real high-pressure Olympic events, because it's the joy set before him. Like he feels God's pleasure when he runs. And, and if he loses, he loses. If he wins, he wins. It doesn't really matter. He just loves to run because God made him fast and he loves, he just loves to run. The other guy, uh, Harold Abrams, he is not free. He is not joyful. When he runs, like the 100-yard dash, he says, I, I have essentially 10 seconds to justify my existence. And if I don't win... I, I feel completely tormented. And I, I just, my whole identity is linked to whether or not I win my event. The, the entirety of my sense of worth is, is connected to whether or not I'm successful. And it's torture. It's not free. It's not joyful. It's slavery. So, so you need to ask yourself, what is that for me? Like, Am I a legalist? Is that what's enslaving me and robbing me of joy? Am I a traditionalist? Am I a cynic? Am I a consumerist? Am I um, following this path of self-determinism? What, what is it? Because God says, this is something you have, to, you have to think about. You have to wrestle with. 
I'm warning you about this and confronting you on this because like the church in Galatia, it seems like you, you naturally want to gravitate back towards slavery. And God loves you too much to let you do that. Now, what's the positive dimension of this spectrum? Right, that's the negative side. God boldly confronting us. What, what does God boldly commend? Because this passage doesn't just say, here's what God's confronting. It says, no, there's, there's something incredibly life-giving and joyful and, and worthy of commendation. So what's the bold commendation? We'll look back at verse 9 and 10. When we talk about bold commendation, what we're really asking is, what does God, the, the maker of our lives, the one who sustains us, the one who loves us, what does he emphatically commend? And if you really want to know what God commends, Verses 9 and 10 say, well, you have to look at Jesus. That's how you will know with, with the utmost certainty what God commends. So in Jesus, we are told, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That is, that is an incredible statement. Uh, it's deliberately redundant. He could have just said the fullness of deity dwells bodily, but he says the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. If you want to know what God's like, you have to look at Jesus of Nazareth. And it says, and in him you've been filled. He dictates, he determines what fills your life, what inundates your thoughts, what most regularly preoccupies you and enamors you. He is the one who decides what, feel, what fills your life because he has that authority. He has all Rule and authority. In other words, Jesus is your bodily example, your living example, fully manifest, and he's your boss. So he's calling the shots. When it says the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, obviously that means we're not talking about mere concept. We're not philosophizing. We have an embodied, emphatic example to follow. So, so three examples from the gospel of how this plays out. The, the understanding and the prevailing definitions for holiness back in Jesus' day, it would mean like, for example, if you're a holy person, if you're a person who, for example, go near Samaria. Uh, the Samaritans were unclean, half-breeds, unholy people. So the prevailing, overwhelming popular opinion was holiness as we have been taught holiness by our religious leaders was, you never go to Samaria. No upstanding Jewish person in Jesus' day ever, ever, ever would even think of going to Samaria. Because it's where those nasty Samaritans live. Those unholy half-breeds live. Okay, so when the whole fullness of deity came to earth and dwelt with us bodily... Where did he spend time? Samaria. And he didn't just go there as mere charity, you know, help out these half-breeds, these people who were lowly and needed help. No, he, he genuinely loved them. Like, he'd spend multiple days with them. He befriended them. He really enjoyed fellowship with them. Who did Jesus establish as the heroes of his short stories? And, and flagrantly contrasted the heroes with the villains. Well, the villains were the Jewish religious leaders, like priests and Levites, and the heroes were Samaritans. 
And he did that very deliberately because he's saying, if you want to know what, what real holiness is, what's truly pleasing in the sight of God, then you have to look at Jesus and see where he went and what he emphasized and what was he all about. Here's another example. The consensus regarding theological expertise in Jesus' day was what I'll, what I'll call synagogue-centric. So if you were going to be theologically astute, and certainly if you were going to be a theological expert, well, you had to go get trained at the synagogue. And, and after you'd been through rigorous training at the synagogue, you would really spend all your time you know, debating with other people at the synagogue, talking about religious concepts and, and having disputes about big theological topics and, and you know, principal religious matters. Okay, so when the best rabbi of all time came to earth, the, the, the person that we would have to identify as the theological expert, God in the flesh, where did he, majority of the time, hang out and, and invest his time and energy? Well, his most famous sermon was on a mountainside, not in the synagogue. He, he was often, you know, preaching from like a boat out, out on the, the, the beach, right? So, so people could hear him standing there on the shore. He was, he was peripatetic. He was out walking around a lot. He was in people's living rooms. He was, he was off in Samaria over in the region of the Gentiles in these rural areas with this ragtag group of misfits, his apostles, none of whom were synagogue educated. It, it, it's very different than what we would expect and what the leaders of Jesus' day would tell you you must esteem. But this is the whole fullness of deity dwelling with us bodily. Last example from the Gospels, uh, Sabbath policy in the days of Jesus of Nazareth prohibited you from, from receiving a healing on the Sabbath. Well, this was a problem. This was, the, this was a problem for, for Jesus because uh, he was always getting accused of Sabbath breaking. According to the religious elite, he was always uh, acting sinful and unholy because he was, according to them, breaking the Sabbath because he would heal people regularly on the Sabbath. And he says, I, I do this because it's good. It's aligned with God's core command, which is love God, love others. Like even, even y'all have like livestock that'll fall into the ditch and you will go to all kinds of trouble to pull them out of the ditch. You're such hypocrites. I'm not allowed to heal people on the Sabbath. You guys are so enslaved to your deceitful elementary philosophies. You're, you're stifling religious codes. You know, Jesus would strut into the synagogue even on the Sabbath and he would, he would, with all the legalists scrutinizing his every move, he would blatantly heal someone and then he would rebuke them for, for not embracing the joy and the freedom that God insists on us having through his son, Jesus. See, we don't have to wonder what God boldly commends because he took on flesh and he definitively, manifestly demonstrated what he commends. And it's really not up for debate. It's not up for nuance because he's the boss. You know, he, he's not hesitant about what he's like and what he's all about. He fills our lives. He is the head of all rule and authority. And here's the deal, guys. Once you grasp this, once you get on board with this, all kinds of things get clarified. That's our last point. Bold clarification. Look at verse 11 and following. It says, in him, in Jesus, you were circumcised. So, 
If you read through the New Testament, read through the book of Acts, read through Paul's letters, read the, is like the main hot button issue. There, there's constant division and confusion and drama all around this question of circumcision. And, and the old, sounds so simple, but this is true. If you look at Jesus, everything gets clarified. Circumcision, the law, if, if you're looking at it th through the filter of who is Jesus and what has he fulfilled, you realize, oh, circumcision and the old, the old Testament law, it's, it's a signpost pointing us to Jesus. It's not, it's not the destination. It's a sign pointing us to the one who will come and fulfill the law for us. Circumcision specifically, it's showing you the need for a blood sacrifice. It, it's, it's, a blood, it's a bloody thing. So it's, it's prompting you to think, okay, some kind of blood sacrifice is apparently going to be required for me to be saved. Circumcision is, someone's going to come through, through the genealogies of the Old Testament. The Son of Man is what we're getting ready for. That, that's who we're being prepared for. Circumcision is a, is a sign of cutting off and killing off the sinful flesh. All driving us to this moment in the fullness of time when Jesus would arrive and us being baptized into him, us being baptized into his death and being united to him, that would replace all of this signage pointing us to Jesus. It would replace and eclipse circumcision. Romans 6 says, you've been baptized into Christ's death, which is what Paul's saying here. You've been buried with him in baptism. You've been united to Jesus. And so all that stuff that was pointing you to this full and final reality, it, that stuff doesn't matter anymore. That's what Paul says. Paul says, Paul used to be this legalist who, who like hunted people down and harassed people and even killed people over whether or not circumcision should still be adhered to. And now in Paul's letters, we see him saying, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. You, you can be circumcised or not be circumcised. It does not matter. It doesn't mean anything. In fact, if there is a point of emphasis, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, you need to understand that stuff like circumcision, the law of Moses, that is, and I'm not making this up, this is what he says. 2 Corinthians 3, he says, it's the ministry of death. The, the law of Moses, he says, it's the ministry of death. It's the ministry of condemnation. And he's not, he's not saying, therefore, it is entirely bad, but he's saying it works kind of like a diagnosis. You know, if you go to the doctor and they run some tests and they diagnose you with cancer, well, on the one hand, you'd say, that's really good. Because if we're going to fight cancer, we, we first need to know I have it. So it's good that we have the gift of diagnostics. But you don't, you don't find the cure in merely diagnosing. Like you're not going to deal with the disease just by diagnosing. You're not going to, to set up shop in the world of diagnostics. You're going to say, that's helpful, but it's honestly just showing me that I'm dying. It's a ministry of death. It's necessary, but it can't cure me. So only in Christ can I be free of this sin disease, right? That's what Jesus says, I'm coming and I am eclipsing and supplanting the Old Testament law and I am inviting you into my freedom and my joy.
And that's what we see emphasized in verse 15. God is disarming the rulers and the authorities, uh, the demonic, stifling slavery. He's putting uh, the rulers and authorities to open shame, it says, triumphing over them in the death and res resurrection of Jesus. A couple weeks ago, I challenged y'all to go home before the Super Bowl, I think it was, and read Galatians. And uh, let's be honest, some of you didn't do that. So I'm going to give you another shot. And if you did read the letter to the church in Galatia, well, it's been two weeks, so you've probably forgotten a lot, and you need a refresher. So go back and, and read it again today. And when you do that, notice what, what Paul's really emphasizing. He, he's emphasizing how he wants the church to live in the freedom and the confidence and the joy of Jesus. And in contrast with that, he wants us to fight a really good fight, which is to refuse to be re-enslaved to these these stifling versions of religiosity and legalism and traditionalism. A really good example of this in the Gospels is found in Mark chapter 2, where uh, this paralyzed guy is brought to Jesus, and uh, Jesus heals this guy, which just as an aside, I mean, just think about this. This guy can't walk. Jesus just tells him, get up, and, and you can walk, and it, it works. He can walk. And in the face of that, the, the stifling, uptight, sort of traditionalist crowd, all they want to do in response to Jesus miraculously healing this guy, all they want to do is continue to argue with Jesus and scrutinize how you know, he's not doing it the way they want him to do it. They're so enslaved. They have no joy. They have no freedom. They're, they're just stuck in their their world of rules and regulations, and that's all they want to consider, and that's all they want to think about. And all the while, I mean, what's available to them? I mean, instead of being enslaved to all of their tedious rules and regulations, I mean, right there, a guy can now walk. They, they could just be celebrating. They could be marveling at the mercy and power of Jesus. They could be putting away these things that clearly enslave them and rob them of joy, and they could, have, they could be focusing on the amazing love of God. And if there is a focal point, a specific focal point in that narrative in Mark 2, which is being emphasized here in this passage, the last thing we have to see is verse 13 through 14. What is being really especially emphasized is how we were dead in our trespasses and God has forgiven us. God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. So again, Mark chapter 2, this guy who has lived his entire life paralyzed, he's been the victim. He has lived with all kinds of trauma. The, the oppressive reality that he can't walk, he can't go get a job, he can't do all the normal things that non-paralyzed people can do. He's the victim. And Jesus, you know what he emphasizes with this guy? He says, you are evil. You are evil. You are a villain. You are not the victim, primarily. You are a villain. And what's amazing and what will replace your villainous identity is that I forgive you. That's what he stresses with the guy. He says, you know, the main, most joyful, most freeing fact of your life, the biggest, boldest thing about you is not that you can now walk. It's that I have come to cancel the debt that stood against you. 
It's great that you can walk. I'm happy for you. But that is so secondary to the big truth now is that you've been forgiven. That's what is most amazing about this joy and freedom and boldness that we have in Jesus. Do you guys realize that? The, the best, most freeing thing about your life, if you're united to Jesus, is that you get to relish the reality that a villainous, evil, wicked person like you has been completely transformed by the forgiveness of Jesus. You know, oftentimes we, we, we just put so much time and thought and energy into, I need to not fail. I need to avoid areas of life where I could potentially fail. And obviously if I fail, I'll probably get blamed. And so I need to have a plan for not getting blamed. And I need to probably think about who I'm going to blame so I can shift that focus away from me. And so, you know, never fail, never get blamed. And Jesus said, you're missing it. That's why you don't have any joy. That's why you don't have any freedom. That's why you're not really confident. That's why you're just wallowing in insecurity your whole life is because the mystery of God is that you find freedom in being forgiven. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. He, he, has, he has come to us while we were dead in our sins and trespasses and he has forgiven us and he has canceled completely for all eternity the record of debt that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. I know a lot of you have been Christians for a long time and I would say today, today, like revel like you've never reveled before in the fact that God has forgiven you. We, we lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of that. A trustworthy saying, deserving of the fullest acceptance, is that you are the chief sinner and God forgives you. He dies for you. He cancels the debt against you for all eternity. That is what is so marvelous. That is what is so amazing. It's the best thing about you. You have been forgiven through Christ alone, and you get to live in the freedom of that forgiveness. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would supernaturally encourage us and prompt us to do this thing that we're really scared to do, which is to uh, be vulnerable and to admit that we are the chief sinners. Even if we've been through a lot of hard stuff, that paralyzed guy, I don't know how he felt when Jesus first and foremost told him, you've been forgiven. Take heart, cheer up, I have forgiven you. But that's what he said. And we don't have to guess, we don't have to wonder. It's, it's so clear, it's so definitive. And it's not a coincidence. You are clearly saying to us, this is the path of joy and confidence and freedom that we would savor the amazing grace and forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. So we ask that you would cause us to be very, very grateful for that and that we would always be living in light of that reality. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.